2: Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.
3: This
4: is an iHeart Original. January 1998. The scene at Magic Valley Mall in Twin Falls, Idaho can only be described as bedlam. For one thing, it's a mall in the 1990s. The windows are shiny, the floor is polished, the water fountain is erupting. It's busy, with shoppers streaming in and out of stores like Hallmark, Software Etc., and Walden Books. Today at Magic Valley Mall is different. It's not full of customers, at least not strictly customers. It's packed with hopefuls. That's the word the movie industry likes to use for actors attending open auditions. It's a little more polite than the other phrase, cattle calls. Somewhere in the middle of Idaho is a group of almost 3,000 people gathering near a Shopco department store, hoping to snag a part in the next Bruce Willis blockbuster, which is going to be shooting right here in the Gem State. Suddenly, there's even more commotion. Bruce Willis has materialized out of thin air. He's submitting to the adoration of the people, customers and fans and aspiring actors alike. He's signing autographs and posing for pictures with disposable cameras. Bruce Willis is live, in the flesh, in the mall. even consents to some interviews with television reporters there to cover the casting call. That probably should have been the first clue that something was a little off. After about an hour of this, another Willis appears. It's David Willis, the movie star's brother and a producer on his new film. David looks at Bruce. Bruce looks at David. David realizes that this isn't Bruce Willis. It's a Willis imposter who decided to have some fun with fans and journalists. It took Willis's brother to call him out and have him escorted off the premises. It's a peculiar story, but the people hoping for a chance at stardom, at least a brush with stardom, aren't really attuned to that. They don't know the real Bruce Willis isn't about to make another diehard, They don't know he's about to embark on what is easily the strangest, riskiest project of his career. But Bruce Willis is so sure he's got a hit on his hands that he's decided to do something virtually unheard of for actors, to self-finance the project. He's producing it, starring in it, filming it just an hour from his house, and recruiting Idahoans to be a part of it. If it works, Bruce Willis will not only bring a financial windfall to Idaho, he'll change the way movies are made, forever. If it doesn't, well, maybe he can blame it on the imposter. For iHeartRadio, this is Hayley an iHeart Original Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is Episode 6, a Bruce Willis production. From the public's perspective, there weren't many downsides to being Bruce Willis in the 1990s. He was a bankable star in action movies, he was married to Demi Moore, and he had a getaway in Haley that had been tailored to suit his every whim, from his own movie theater to his own diner. But Willis was getting frustrated. He'd been churning out movies like Mercury Rising, where he protected an autistic child who'd cracked a top-secret government code, and Color of Night, which gave audiences their first-ever glimpse of Bruce Willis's genitals. Audiences would have seen more, but the ratings board threatened to give the movie an NC-17 classification. Not long after, Willis announced he was getting bored with action movies with genre movies, with not being allowed to show his penis for the sake of art. He hadn't been celebrated for his acting prowess since 1994's Pulp Fiction, in which he played boxer Butch Coolidge for director Quentin Tarantino. Willis bristled when people referred to him as an action hero. He'd ask them what they meant by that, by action hero. He said it in italics, like it was an insult. He said that in action movies... He didn't feel like he was doing his best work. So he decided to take more control. He knew the best place to demonstrate his acting ability was where he had gotten started on stage. Before the world was introduced to Bruce Willis in Moonlighting in 1985, he had gotten a break that was, in many ways, just as important, just as big. In 1984, He was cast in an off-Broadway production of Fool for Love. Playwright Sam Shepard had debuted it the year prior. It's about two lovers in a desert motel, Eddie and May, who slowly pick away at one another emotionally. That year, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Drama. Didn't win, but in the case of the Pulitzer, it really is a pretty big deal just to be nominated. Willis knew the play's lead, actor Will Patton, who suggested Willis be his understudy. When Patton left the show, Willis stepped in. It was Willis's biggest part yet. But after roughly a hundred performances, the play's producers took Willis aside and told him they needed an actor with more presence, an established star. Maybe, they said, a movie star. Ouch. They chose Aidan Quinn, That must have stung a little, but good things came out of that short run anyway. It helped land him an agent, which helped land him auditions, and eventually led to moonlighting. So there's no question the stage world was on his mind when Bruce Willis moved to Haley. Willis had even made The Mint, his bar and nightclub, available to a local production.
3: I and a friend had written this play about our time in New York City, and we offered it to them saying we would do it, um, kind of a, a musical comedy, if you will.
4: That's David Blampede, an actor and one-time resident of Sun Valley.
3: And we would do it as dinner theater. So that would open up his restaurant and give him a chance to show what he was doing there and us a chance to do the show. A show called Two More Laps, L-A-P-S-E. It was pretty, it was, it was amazing little... Thing to be able to do, but it was Bruce, and you know uh, they they wanted something, and they knew that we were around and been around, and we're local talent, so they uh, we got a nice audience. We did one show, and it was a, it was a great experience,
4: and it went pretty well, except David scared the shit out of Bruce Willis without meaning to.
3: I remember we were trying to rehearse and set up getting ready, and I needed to ask Bruce if I could use their green room, he called it, which would be for when he has his big entertainment. <laughs> when they said he just left, and I went running out the door and saw him in his truck and went running after him, and I'll never forget the look on his face. You uh, you would have thought he, he was being stalked or somebody was trying to rob him. He was just shook up that someone was chasing him down the street. <laughs> I apologized and said, I just nearly get, need to get his permission to use the green room. And he said, of course. Um, and that's really how I remember he was always pretty much um, willing to 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 give to the community and to people who worked with him and whatever. I, I mean, they made a big difference to Haley Idaho and to, to my theater career, if you will, in, in the Valley.
4: David had come to the area from the East Coast back in 1976, bringing his love of theater with him.
3: I was kind of thinking of going to Seattle and trying my luck there in theater, um, and then just decided, no, this was a good place. And so with these friends of mine, formed um, a company called New Theater Company.
4: The New Theater Company put on local productions. Nothing big, but good, solid, well-produced plays. What David really wanted to do was one about Ernest Hemingway. The famous writer was also a one-time resident of Ketchum, not far from Haley.
3: I was asked, because I've been told that I looked a lot like a young Hemingway, to do something um, about Hemingway. And if I found a show I liked, I thought I might do it.
4: Once David found the right script, he tried to get the show off the ground.
3: I wonder if Bruce or to me, might be interested in getting involved. And I remember a very brief conversation, and he, you know, said, "Well, not at this time." Uh, not much later, he brought in these um, old, I guess, schoolmates that had a theater company in North Carolina called Company of Fools. And uh, that's when the renovation of the Liberty Theater became clear that he wanted to do live theater, not just a movie theater. And obviously, with, with Bruce and Demi's name behind it, um, yeah, they they uh, funding became a little more difficult to get for my company. Um, but we we coexisted for a few years.
4: It was hard to compete with a theater company that had Bruce Willis's money to spend. David would have to hit the streets for fundraising. Willis just wrote a check.
3: But I did pay attention to what they were doing. There were there were some interesting, interesting new stuff, and very I mean very innovative for for Haley. They did even God they put in a, a, an aquatic area around the stage for their production of The Tempest. So that they could get in and out of water, it was an astounding renovation. I mean, if if you could have seen it, was just a concrete square movie theater. I mean, there was there was nothing about it that said really welcoming theater. Um, but they just decided they were going to make it the you know center of Haley culture, and they did. They did a very 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 nice job, and and I. Saw many productions there. I even saw Robin Williams warming up the act.
4: The Liberty decided to make a splash by mounting Fool for Love, a play Willis loved but which hadn't always loved him back. This time, he was in his early 40s. The seasoned movie star the off-Broadway producers had wanted him to be years ago. And he owned the theater, No one could fire him. Movies, Willis said, were take after take after take until everyone was happy. The stage was immediate. You didn't have to wait for test screenings or opening weekend to figure out if something worked. If it was funny, people laughed. If it was sad, people cried. More than that, it was dramatic. Not dramatic because of machine guns, but dramatic because of its emotional heft. Even though Willis had been pigeonholed as an action hero, that wasn't why he got into acting. There was a real performer under the bloodied muscle shirts and one-liners, one that increasingly wanted and needed a way to feel that again. If The Mint gave Willis his musical outlet, the liberty would prove his dramatic chops. He could have done the play for Big Money in New York City, but New York City wasn't Haley. It wasn't home. According to reviewers, Willis was dazzling. His Eddie was pugnacious, desperate, commanding. Willis performed Fool for Love over a dozen times that spring and summer of 1997. Ticket sales were always brisk. As reclusive as Willis could be, the Liberty was the ideal place to showcase his craft. Not his diehard craft with explosions, but the craft that had made him want to be an actor in the first place. But there had to be a way to marry his dramatic sensibilities with a major feature film, right? A movie done on his terms. A movie where he had full creative control, just like he had on stage, where he didn't have to point a gun at anyone. And that's how Bruce Willis met Kurt Vonnegut
5: Hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit.
0: Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's
2: go places. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bare Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen, and it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare-exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window,
4: Kurt Vonnegut had probably never seen a Die Hard movie, but Bruce Willis had read plenty of Vonnegut. His irreverent satires like Slaughterhouse-Five combine a droll humor with a keen perception of the human condition. Vonnegut's 1973 novel Breakfast of Champions had been kicking around Hollywood for decades. A dark comedy, it tells the story of a car dealer named Dwayne Hoover, who gradually loses his mind after meeting a science-fiction author named Kilgore Trout. If that premise sounds a little hard to grasp, then you know how studio executives felt. Like most of Vonnegut's work, Breakfast of Champions was filed away as a project that was virtually unfilmable. It was too insulated, too much of an interior character study to be visualized. But that didn't dissuade director Alan Rudolph from trying. Rudolph acquired the rights to Breakfast of Champions and spent years trying to get a feature film made. He couldn't manage it. It was impenetrable. No one wanted to finance a movie about a car dealer who had a breakdown because he met a man named Kilgore Trout. But Rudolph got a break. In 1990, he directed a film titled Mortal Thoughts, a thriller about a woman who has to fight off charges that she killed a friend's abusive husband. The movie starred Bruce Willis's wife, Demi Moore. It also co-starred Willis as Jimmy, the man Moore's character is alleged to have killed. Over the course of filming, Willis became friendly with Rudolph. At some point, Rudolph mentioned he had the rights to Breakfast of Champions. He'd even written a script, which was now over 20 years old. In the throes of his stardom in the 1990s, it's possible Willis didn't think too much about it at the time. But as the 90s went on and more and more guns were shoved into his hand on movie posters, Willis thought about Alan Rudolph, about Kurt Vonnegut, and about taking a chance.
3: Well, that's, what, that's why I believed it was, it was a pet project. It was his, to begin with, rather than signing him into it. It was his pet hit. It was just something for him to be able to you know, spread his wings as an actor to producer, to director.
4: Because Bruce Willis wanted to have considerable influence over the movie, he decided to ensure he had complete ownership of it. His agents financed it through a complex system of pre-selling foreign distribution rights and using that to secure a loan. And when the production still needed money, Willis used his own. This is not something actors do, like, ever.
6: It must have been a a labor of love, you know, Kurt Vonnegut novel, all that. Yeah. Most of them are are looking for other people's money.
4: You know, OPM. (laughs) That's Peg Owens, the one-time film commissioner for Idaho. Peg came to the state from California, where she had been a photographer for tourism promotion.
6: I did that, and I handled film permits. And... Back then, um, oh gosh, I think the biggest one was—I'm sorry, this is quite a quite a while ago—a um, Mel Gibson movie. What was the one where he was the crazy detective? Lethal Weapon. Yes, the first Lethal Weapon was filmed in my jurisdiction. I'm sorry. Um, so I was I was in Long Beach when they filmed Lethal Weapon. Anyway, so I. I went from photography to learning how to handle a film production in a jurisdiction, knowing the laws of my jurisdiction and what what they would allow and not allow, where they could park and all of that stuff, all all of the logistics. And so I did that for three and a half years, and then I moved up to Idaho. And unbeknownst to me at the time, Idaho was creating a film commission job. Um, The title was Film Specialist at the Department of Commerce, and I landed that job and held it for 26 years.
4: So that's how Peg Owens found herself amidst a Bruce Willis production in Idaho, one in which he could essentially veto anyone else. Taking the level of control Willis wanted comes with risks, and once you're on top in Hollywood, there's no reason to take those risks yourself. That's the job of studios and production companies. But Willis wasn't one for conventional wisdom. He formed Flying Heart Films, named after the Flying Heart Ranch housing subdivision where he lived in Haley. And as the uncredited executive producer and partial financier of the movie, Willis could determine where it was shot. The story was set in fictional Midland City, an all-American town. Twin Falls, Idaho, was the perfect stand-in for Midland City, Willis thought. It had beautiful backdrops like Camas Prairie and, a little further afield, the Craters of the Moon National Monument. Best of all, it was only 70 miles from his house, an easy commute in one of his classic cars. If it worked out, Willis indicated he'd shoot one movie a year right in Idaho. Shooting a movie in the state wasn't unheard of. Michael Cimino shot some of the highly vilified Heaven's Gate there in 1979. Napoleon Dynamite would be shot there a few years later in 2003. Most notably, the 1997 volcano disaster movie Dante's Peak was filmed there in a town named Wallace. That production was massive. It had a budget of over $90 million.
6: That was the one that spent the most money. It was here the longest. Um I only really showed them two locations, and they picked one of those two. Um, it was fascinating to watch what they did to the city of Wallace to make it look like it had been ashed by a volcano. They put up frames with, like, cardboard so that they could then spread. It was really, like, newspaper pulp that was then sprayed all over these kind of curved things so that it would look like it was a pile of ash when it was really a wooden frame covered by uh, newspaper. Newspaper pulp was the ash.
4: Yep, 90 million dollars.
6: It was really a very pleasant um, experience because the production company was great and the town was great.
4: As a filming location, Idaho had a lot to offer. From that perspective, Peg wasn't surprised Willis wanted to mount a production there.
6: Oh, well, I thought it was a wonderful idea. You know, we have had a number of celebrities living here that chose not to work here. And so it was very hopeful at the time that he would not only do that one, but would bring
4: more. Willis believed shooting in Idaho would bring an economic boost to the local community. Cast and crew were there to spend money, at stores, on hotels, everywhere. All told, the impact might amount to around $2 million.
6: I think the difficulty in people like Bruce Willis trying to make films in the place in which they live is, first of all, it has to match, you know, I mean, Die Hard would not have matched anything in Idaho, right? So there has to be a script match. All of that has to work first. But then you come upon a huge problem, and that is you have to just about fly in everybody, right? And any big movie is going to bring all their principles.
4: The cast was full of big names, like Willis, who would play Dwayne Hoover, and Albert Finney, who would play Kilgore Trout, as well as Nick Nolte and Owen Wilson. But they also wanted to hire local talent to fill out smaller parts. To do that, Willis and the production put out a casting call.
6: Extras is different. Extras you get anywhere. Extras might as well be a lamppost. They're just moving lampposts, right? Hey, walk here, walk there. Extras is totally different.
4: At the Magic Valley Mall, once the dust settled on the imposter stunt, Idahoans laid out their credentials. A realtor brought his wedding portrait and his World War II medal to show casting directors. Another man was a drywaller who said he had once played Ronald McDonald. One actor who didn't have to go to the mall was David Blampied, the guy who once made Bruce Willis think that he was about to get mugged.
3: I got a call from the casting director who said, and I said, well, why are you calling me? I mean, I'm very pleased and would love to audition. And she said, well, Bruce wanted to have all of his friends audition. And I thought, well, that's really nice. I didn't think of myself as a personal friend of Bruce's, but I mean, he knew who I was and knew what I was doing, so so I appreciated being included in um, the audition process. And uh, the couple roles that I auditioned for, and I and and they called me back. One I thought was pretty good. It was a state trooper, or whatever. But because whatever the scene was, there was a car that almost. Knocked the guy off the road. They wanted to get a stunt man instead of using an actor for that that role. I thought, well, I'm disappointed, but you know, well, it's that's life. And then they called me and offered me um, a role as a police officer in, uh, who's arresting. Uh, <laughs> Name is I hated Kilgore Trout.
4: His first scene, which had him acting opposite Albert Finney, had problems with extras not doing what they were supposed to do. David's head is in the frame, but not his face. He was disappointed, but then he got another call.
3: David Blocker, he was the producer of this film. And he introduced us, uh, it's David Blocker, and and we noticed that you didn't get any on-camera time wondering if you wanted to do another part. So April 1st, I was waiting for all my April 1st jokes. I said, who, who sent you? Who told you to do this? Who is this? So I didn't believe him. I did not believe him. And he was very gracious and said, I'll have the cast director call you. And at that point, I went, oh, okay. Yeah, do that. And two minutes later. A very irate casting director said, "I have to call you. You don't believe David Blocker's giving you a role in the movie." I said, "I'm sorry. It's April 1st. What did I know?" So, I have two speaking roles in Breakfast Champions. I got to play a prison guard in the the next part of the film, and uh, was on camera. So, um, I owe that I am sure to the lovely uh, Albert Finney, who knew I was disappointed and probably sitting in screening, said, why don't you call this guy?
4: The production had other issues. At the auto dealer doubling as Dwayne Hoover's dealership in the movie, real-life customers looking for a new or used car had to walk around police barricades. A giant billboard of Bruce Willis in character as Dwayne Hoover was installed overlooking the highway in town. It was for a scene where Hoover has to navigate a massive highway pileup involving 55 cars. To achieve that, the crew shut down a major highway artery, diverting traffic through a detour. Locals were not amused.
3: So it was traffic jams sometimes, probably, and confusion that this street was closed or whatever. And you know, I, um, how do I put it? I, you know, there's a there's a simplicity to life in in, the, in Idaho. There was always a sense, even when I first got there, of feeling like I was invading their territory, you know. I guess they've always felt that there somebody was coming in, whether it was the Sun Valley Company or something to build and buy and take up land and and push people socially away, if you will, Just that's how they felt. They felt that, they, you know, their life was being uh, taken over by these Hollywood stars and people coming into Sun Valley to uh, ski or whatever. Um, So yeah, uh, Twin Falls, I don't think they were thrilled that that was happening in, in Twin
5: Falls.
4: What Willis hadn't necessarily realized was that not everyone in Sun Valley and Twin Falls was going to be ecstatic over a movie being shot there. To them, it wasn't magic. It was a nuisance. Sometimes they just wanted to get to work without a TJ Eckelberg billboard of Bruce Willis hovering over the highway that they couldn't use. Sometimes they just wanted to buy a used mid-sized sedan in peace. There was even criticism that Breakfast of Champions was obscene, even though it contained only passing references to sex. Newspaper op-ed writers fretted that it could open the door to lurid movies being shot in Idaho on a regular basis. One day it's Vonnegut, the next day it's Caligula. It was a slippery slope. Other locals took it in stride. At the second time around Antique Mall in Twin Falls, owners Claudia and Leo Reese put out a bunch of not very antique Bruce Willis memorabilia, hoping Willis mania would erupt. Of course, that wasn't quite Sun Valley's style. Movie stars were no big deal, and Breakfast of Champions didn't quite instill the kind of fervor of a movie where Pierce Brosnan fights volcanoes. Dwayne Hoover's struggle was more insulated, more of a man-versus-himself kind of story. But Willis was completely in his element. He didn't have to explain to studio executives what he and Rudolph were going for, which was a very strange, almost psychedelic examination of a car dealer unraveling. The shoot, which lasted a total of six weeks, also included a cameo by Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut had said he had written the novel as a 50th birthday present to himself. Now 75, he played a director of a television commercial. Vonnegut was never all that bullish on Hollywood adapting his work. He once said that film is, quote, too clankingly real, too permanent, too industrial, too fing expensive to be much fun. But here, where Willis was spending some of his own money, Vonnegut didn't seem to mind visiting and being in front of the camera. By late 1998, Breakfast of Champions was finished. Alan Rudolph and the Willis brothers sat down to evaluate what they had. When the film was to their satisfaction, they planned on taking it out and selling it to the highest bidder. And even if the movie wasn't to their liking, studios might still snag it up just to endear themselves to Willis, to be on his mind when he decided to do another action opus. Hollywood wondered what this new paradigm might look like. A-list actors taking control of their passion projects. Everyone was about to find out.
5: If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65%! Because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit.
7: Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bear Premium
2: Plus Paint is here to make it happen and it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare-exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window,
4: In May 1999, Bruce Willis strolled down the aisle of a movie theater in Seattle, Washington, and introduced his brand new film, Breakfast of Champions. It was a screening for the city's film festival. Instead of telling audiences how excited he was, how much he looked forward to them seeing it, He said something pretty peculiar. He said that he would make no apologies for what they were about to see. That's not quite something you say when you're promoting a movie intended for mass consumption. But once the film began, the crowd understood what Willis meant. Breakfast of Champions was a fever dream of a movie, going from one puzzling sequence to another. Its absurdist sense of humor felt off-target. It wasn't really funny for a comedy, and it wasn't really serious for a drama. The crowd stumbled away in a bit of a daze. Even Kurt Vonnegut called it painful to watch, and he got money for it.
6: I don't know much about his distribution plan, but it it seems like it took a long time to edit, and then it was screened one or two places, and maybe that didn't go well.
4: That scene repeated itself as more and more people got a glimpse of Breakfast of Champions. Here's David Blampede.
3: And when I, when I saw it, I went, hmm, interesting. I mean, not, uh, I wanted to see what, what I looked like on screen, I suppose. It just didn't, it wasn't cohesive to me. It didn't, it didn't ring the same way reading the, you know, uh, kind of 50s version of it. I think that was a mistake, to try to put it more contemporary, because the kind of satirical, farcical nature of the piece, I don't know, I don't think it worked. I mean, it seems to me the most acclaim the movie got was uh, Nick Nolte in drag.
4: Willis had gotten an opportunity to make the movie he wanted to make, one he made no apologies for. But it turned out there was a reason Alan Rudolph had experienced such trouble getting it off the ground initially. It's a strange story. Maybe too strange for mainstream Hollywood at the time. The film sat on a shelf until Buena Vista, which was owned by Disney, agreed to distribute it. But a planned April 1999 release came and went. It wasn't until September that the film got a limited release so limited that it made just over $178,000 in ticket sales. It might be Bruce Willis's least seen film.
6: Okay, where can I watch Breakfast of Champions? Oh, it's on Amazon Prime. No. Unavailable. Yeah, it's, it's listed there, but that doesn't mean it's currently available.
4: Google, you lie. Back when the movie wrapped, Idahoans were kind of indifferent to it all. When the company sold off the movie's props, people treated it less like a memorabilia sale and more like a garage sale. This wasn't the Planet Hollywood gift shop. It was a big lots. People bought things not because they were used in a movie, but because it was stuff that they wanted at a reasonable price. Stuff like a leather vest or a briefcase or kitchen items. The unnamed man in charge of the sale was even trying to sell a toilet that he said Bruce Willis had sat on. It wasn't entirely clear whether he was joking. Willis did his part to promote it locally too. He autographed the back deck of the 1997 Pontiac Trans Am he drove in the movie, which was offered for sale by Gary's Westland Motors. He also premiered the movie locally in Haley at his own Liberty Theater.
3: He did a screening at the Liberty probably, I, hmm. It was an interesting time for me. I don't, I was probably busy doing something else, either reading or whatever that I never, I don't remember going to a premiere. Yeah,
6: I never saw the movie though.
4: But the box office blip of Breakfast of Champions doesn't quite tell the whole story. Thanks to the radical financing deal, it more or less broke even. Today, a lot of movies are financed by selling international rights before a single frame is shot. Now, Bruce Willis didn't invent this strategy, but he might have been slightly ahead of his time. And as poorly as the film did, 1999 was, on balance, one of the best years of Bruce Willis's career. Just a month before Breakfast of Champions was released, Willis starred in The Sixth Sense as a child psychologist trying to counsel a kid who insists that he sees dead people. It made hundreds of millions of dollars. If it weren't for Episode One of Star Wars, The Sixth Sense would have been the biggest movie of that year. But that wasn't Willis's personal project. His passion project, that one filmed in his home state, had simply come and gone. Even though Willis didn't lose money on Breakfast of Champions, it was a blow to his ego. He had stuck his neck out and tried something different, and didn't get a lot of praise as a maverick filmmaker. Around the same time filming on the movie was completed, the people of Haley were growing concerned that Bruce Willis may one day grow tired of being the region's benefactor. That maybe all the money and time and effort he had sunk into it wasn't delivering the reward he expected. It had been years since he had led a 4th of July parade on horseback. This was concerning. What few Haley residents knew was that their town wasn't the only one Bruce Willis was trying to reinvigorate.
0: In Pensgrove, it had been in the decline now for probably 35 years. And to see stores and businesses and the community go downhill and depressed and have to get transitional aid from the state and no jobs and the people Struggling, it was it was deflating. It was depressing.
4: All this time, there had been a kind of mistress, a funhouse mirror version of Haley that Willis was looking to spend even more money on to renovate.
0: And he had ideas to bring, like a uh, like a restaurant, like a steakhouse where the bank would be. I guess it was something similar, like he did out in Haley, Idaho,
4: to find out what would happen to Haley. All people had to do was look at the last town Bruce Willis tried to save, his hometown of Penns Grove, New Jersey.
0: And I thought his ideas were were, were brilliant and would would make a big impact in in the town.
1: Haleywood is hosted by Dana Schwartz. This show is written by Jake Rawson. Editing by Derek Clemens, Mary Dew, and me, Josh Fisher. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal, Derek Clemens, and me, Josh Fisher. Original music by Natasha Jacobs. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson, Austin Thompson, and Marissa Brown. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch, and our executive producer is Jason English. Special thanks to the people of Haley, Idaho, and all those who've shared their stories. Haleywood is a production of iHeartRadio. Until next time.